This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. Welcome to The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. And I'm Anahita. Thanks for listening. Uh, and today is our last show of the fall semester. So, yay. <laughs> no? Vacation. <laughs> yeah, yay. <laughs> it's not a very, well, we're kind of sad about the topic, but yeah. not really. Well, no, because it's like good things. Yeah, there are good things. It's still just a hard topic to discuss. Mm-hmm. But um, so we it's going to be a combination of us talking about it. And uh, we have an interview actually from a professor that was here uh, a few weeks ago uh, giving a talk in the Department of Chemistry. He was a Thomas lecturer there um, and we got the chance to sit down and talk to him. So um, it's a very, very interesting topic, um, research that he's doing um, and if you are a true listener of the show, you'll see... Oh, you're here. Um, some familiar stuff that we've talked about, and <laughs> yeah, um, which is which is very exciting. So, um, just a reminder that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so by calling or texting here on studio at five seven three eight eight two eight two six two. You can also find us on Facebook where we are the Big Electron, or you can email us at thebigelectron.kcou at gmail dot com. And if you're listening to us through our podcast, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. Please rate it and review us. And if you're listening to us through any other method, also thank you for listening to us. Mm -hmm. But do not rate or review us. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> but I think you can. <laughs> that is, if you're, if you're listening to us via KCOU.FM. Thanks for that. Um, okay, so should we get started? Absolutely. Absolutely. So today, <gasps> wow. <We're> so <laughs> We're the cutest. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I'm biased. Um, well, so a major uh, part of today's uh, interview and the topic uh, of the interview is HIV, which is uh, a virus which causes uh, AIDS, which is a um, eventually uh, lethal illness if left untreated. So um, we thought we'd start off by giving a little bit of background about the technical reality of what HIV is so that some of our uh, interview uh, makes a little bit more sense. And also just so that you know a little bit more about this, this pretty fascinating uh, and important topic because this is a major, uh, a major factor in health uh, across the world. Mm -hmm. So HIV is human immunodeficiency uh, virus. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it stands for. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> I should have looked that HIV up right there. Uh, that's what it is though. Anyway, pretend I didn't say that. Um, 
HIV is a is a virus. Human immunodeficiency virus infection. Ah, I got it. Um, all right. So that's HIV, and it's the virus which causes uh, AIDS. And it is a virus, as it says right there in the name. And just to clarify what that is, a virus is a tiny, tiny little particle, smaller than one of your cells, smaller than the DNA inside your cells that determines all these genetics and stuff that make you what you are. Um, and it basically is just this tiny, selfish little element that just wants to replicate itself. And it fits into a category of viruses called retrovirus. Mm -hmm. a retrovirus. Which means which it's old school. Yeah, it's got a little mustache that, that sort of, you know, got the, the, uh, the goatee thing going on and a big, and a big curly head of hair. Anyway, um, so yes, it is a retrovirus from the 60s. Um, <laughs> that, um, and this category of viruses, which includes HIV, the way that they replicate themselves, that's what defines this category, is their way of doing that. Mm -hmm. Basically what they do is they bust into your cells and... They make a copy of themselves into your DNA. So mm -hmm. basically these tiny little virus particles are already kind of this thing that's similar to DNA. Mm -hmm. And it includes a couple of genes on it that allows these guys to replicate themselves. What they do, they copy themselves as DNA into your own genes, basically. And kind of tricking the cell into saying, yeah. look, I'm also your DNA. Right. And then your cells can't tell the difference between that virus DNA and your own. And, and then the genes that are on that virus's DNA are going to start being made by your cells. And it will make more of that retrovirus. So that's how it works. And when the thing is, when you get an infection like that, it's really hard to get rid of it because mm -hmm. because that thing's working its way into your own DNA, and getting rid of that is a challenge that we have not yet been able to overcome. Right, and it's also a way of, um, you know, we talk about our immune system, which is our our defense system, and if that system cannot identify the difference between that thing that's attacking you and that thing that it's you, then exactly you have no way of combating those, uh, the virus that it's in there. And right. so, um, something that, uh, how is HIV treated? HIV is treated, um, by a combination of, of medications, uh, to fight the, the infection. And this therapy is called the anti, antiretroviral therapy. So antiretroviral viruses yeah. therapy or art, um, it is not a cure, obviously, uh, but it can control the virus uh, so that people infected with HIV uh, can live longer, sometimes healthier lives, and reduce the, the risk of transmitting to others. Um, so how does ART work? Um, you take a combination of medicines uh, every day, exactly as prescribed, and you have to take those every single day. Um, and what they've they uh, these drugs do is they prevent the HIV virus from multiplying, um, which reduces the amount of HIV in your body. Uh, of course, if you have less, then the immune system can give a chance to. Uh, I'm sorry, to that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I just got really. It was shocking. We are professionals here. Uh, so if you if you have uh, obviously less uh, of the virus in there, then it kind of gives chance for your immune system to recover and fight other infections, um, such as the flu or uh, some cancers or whatever, uh, which is actually what happens to 
um, when patients uh, uh, die because of HIV AIDS, it's not necessarily, it's not because of the virus, but it's because of, of those other um, infections or diseases that they got and that their immune system could not um, fight off. Yeah. And just to clarify, you know, retrovirus basically works its way into your cells. HIV in particular loves your immune cells. Mm -hmm. So when it gets in there and starts messing up your immune cells, then you don't have the ability to fight off normal diseases like, you know, the flu, for example. Normally your immune cells can take care of that. But if you have an HIV infection in too many of those cells, then then even your ability to fight off that kind of simple illness won't be won't be there working properly. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so, um, I'm sorry, but the, so the way that the life cycle happens for HIV, for HIV mm -hmm. is first you have binding where it attaches to the surface of CD4 cells. Okay. Uh -huh. Then the next <laughs> thing is it fuses with the CD4 cell membrane. Um, so it, so it binds to a CD4 receptor mm -hmm. then it fuses with the membrane and then it inserts itself in where it starts to release its components that genetically incorporate into the cell. And then it replicates and then it starts to form new HIV proteins, which bud off and, and go off. But in mm -hmm. that process of inserting its own DNA, it's, it's altering, obviously, the CD4 cell. Mm -hmm. And that, that portion of the HIV life cycle is important to how we diet, how we diagnose people with HIV. And because I, you can detect those cells. Those that type were of cells look different if they have it and if they don't. Right. And yeah. what, and how much of those cells you have indicates where you are in the stages of HIV and AIDS. Right. Cause it's, we have three stages. Yes. Three stages. And the last stage is AIDS. That's why when you, when you see, um, <clears throat> when we talk about HIV, it's generally HIV slash AIDS because um, mm -hmm. you can be HIV positive but not develop AIDS until you're at a later stage of the right. disease. And that, so I guess I'll say real quick what the three stages are. Yep. The first is acute HIV infection. And so that's two to four weeks after, you're, after you've been infected with HIV and you develop the quote, worst flu ever. So it's very flu-like symptoms, fever, swollen glands, rash, muscle aches and pains, headache. This is called um, ARS or acute retroviral syndrome or primary HIV infection or HIV stage one. All of those, same That's thing. a lot of different names. And at this point, you actually increase your CD4 cell count. Um, but you'll never... And, you, and you'll never re return to the levels of CD4 cells that you had before the infection. So you start to get... More. More. Or you, or you make more. You, you start making more. And then the second stage is um, the clinical latency stage. And this, at this point, the HIV virus is reproducing at low levels, but is still active. And you can be symptom-free at this stage. But then when mm -hmm. you're in stage three, which is AIDS, that's when the number that's identified by the number of CD4 cells you have and um, or if you have any opportunistic illnesses. And at that point, without taking any kind of treatment, your life expectancy drops to about three years from that point on. 
However, if you've been taking ART or the anti... um, Retroviral therapy. Yes. Then you have an anticipated normal lifespan. Yeah. The idea is to prevent you from progressing to that stage Mm -hmm. three, basically. Yeah. So that's why detection is important in the early stages. Yeah. So you can go and get your ART therapy. Well... (laughs) Um, yeah, I- <laughs> so uh, so that's uh, how uh, right now in the clinic, that's how if you are infected with HIV, um, that's how they will treat you. Yeah, our therapy, uh, they will combine. It's it's a regimen. It's a combination of different medicines, depending on what stage you are and depending on what other illnesses you have or um, if you are prone to certain diseases or whatever. Um, they do a combination of, of drugs um, and then you have to take them every single day for the rest of your life. Yes. So they will prevent the progression of the disease to AIDS. Obviously, uh, that is not something that um, it's it's feasible for, for a lot of ways. And so uh, there are there's a lot of research in um, both trying to cure the disease and have better treatments for, for this disease. Um, so we had the chance, Anahita and I had the chance to sit down with Professor Paul Wender. He is a professor at Stanford University um, in the Department of Chemistry. And he is doing some research in regards to uh, treatment of diseases. Uh, in this case, he talked mainly about HIV, uh, though he actually uh, goes into other other treatments, uh, other diseases that um, he's treating, and how using chemistry um, you can attack some of the bigger problems that it's in there. Um, so HIV is going to be mentioned, uh, art therapy, he mentions it quite a bit, so that's why we wanted to judge on that one um, before we play the interview. So um, this is the first part of our interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, again, this is our interview with Professor Paul Winter. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Wender from Stanford University. Welcome, Paul. Good morning. Well, we're excited to have you here today. You do some really great research, but first I'd like to know, how did you get into science? Uh, Probably, you know, it goes back to a time that I don't even recall, but from the earliest age, I was curious about a lot of things and was always mixing things together and aggravating my parents um, (laughs) because I was making a mess out of soaps and and things under the sink. And uh, it just grew from there into, you know, a curiosity about chemistry Uh, and and a lot of things for that matter. And so I was the stereotypical, you know, chemistry lab in the house kind of person mixing things together. I befriended our neighborhood pharmacist who actually would supply me with chemicals and I would go to the hardware store and get other chemicals, things that you would not be able to do these days. Mm -hmm. I had access to, I would take my paper route money and I would put it into buying bottles of hydrochloric acid and (laughs) mix hydrochloric acid with store-bought zinc to produce hydrogen and fill balloons up with hydrogen and launch them into the air with notes attached to them and uh, it's just a lot of fun when you're you know mixing things together and discovering things that most of the world knew but I didn't know at the time it was just a lot of fun and so it grew out of that experience so did you always know chemistry was going to be the route for you then? Uh, no, not necessarily chemistry. I guess I was just intensely curious and you know, I could see myself uh, going in a lot of directions driven by that curiosity. And, and in fact, uh, then and even now, I just have a fascination with art of all things. And I really see science as just being part of a continuum from 
from art to science. Uh, you know, if, if you're uh, working on a science project, you start off with a blank piece of paper and you start to doodle on it and figure out a plan and, and things of that type. And if you're, you know, putting together a painting, you start off with a blank canvas and start to apply chemicals to it in a way that uh, provides some kind of feedback that's meaningful. So even to this day, I, I you know, work with uh, painting and sculpting and, and things of that type. So I have fun just pursuing things driven by curiosity, I would say. That's fantastic. I, I want more scientists to see that correlation between science and art. That's a, that's a great connection. Can you tell us a little bit about spe- your specific field? So we, uh, we make molecules. Um, and, and we start off thinking about molecules that might have a function, uh, whether it be spectroscopic or catalytic or therapeutic or diagnostic. Uh, and we try to design molecules that would do things that haven't been done before, that might cure diseases for which we have no known cures. So we're obviously working um, on attempts to eradicate HIV-AIDS. You know, we could stop progression of the disease, but uh, we have not developed the wherewithal to be able to cure the disease. And so uh, I think for all of science, for all of us, we should be focusing attention on what we could do next. And the next thing in that area would be to see if we could eradicate uh, the disease. So that's a, you know, an example of uh, where we start with, with a, uh, a functional goal, curing a disease, and then reduce it down to uh, what we could do in, in terms of making new chemical entities that might Uh, help us to understand how we could attack these problems. So in regards to your studies with HIV, um, you began with a blank sheet of paper and the goal of curing HIV, yes? Uh, It it wasn't as clean as that, and I think that's true of a lot of uh, science. Uh, There's a progression of uh, activities and uh, in this particular case, we were fascinated with a group of molecules initially because these molecules were going to teach us about tumor promotion, which um, is uh, a way of amplifying the effect of a carcinogen. And, and why would one want to know about that? Well, if we know more about the mechanism of carcinogenesis, that is how cancer gets started, mm-hmm. we might be able to develop tools that would prevent an initiation of cancer. So that interest in tumor promoters uh, morphed into uh, a discovery about these agents being able to make cancer cells more immunogenic, so more visible to our immune system. And now, now we're thinking about, at that point in time, we were thinking about uh, these might be compounds that could be used for cancer immunotherapy. Rather than killing cells, killing cancer cells, which obviously is a good thing to do, but we can't do it as selectively as we would like, if we could make those cells more visible, then maybe our immune system would be able to kill them. And then that, as we learn more about these kinds of compounds, we then uh, made a connection with their ability to activate latent viral reservoirs. Um, And that was the connection with with HIV-AIDS eradication, because the problem of AIDS uh, right now is is kind of a two-problem problem. That is, we have the active virus, which we're treating now with what is called antiretroviral therapy, or ART, um, and that stops progression of the disease. And, and this is great because people can now live with the disease. We could suppress the active virus to undetectable levels, so um, being HIV positive is, is no longer the death sentence that it had been 
in the 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, but we could take it to the next level. And so the, the other part of the problem, the second part of the problem, is that there are latent or reservoir cells, latently infected cells, that harbor uh, copies, uh, either copies of the virus or um, have insinuated into their genome uh, the information to generate the virus. And so unless we get rid of those latent viral reservoirs, we're not going to be able to get rid of the disease because these reservoirs from time to time are activated and they produce active virus. Uh, and therefore the host basically is resupplying, reinfecting himself or herself. Mm -hmm. So if we could get rid of the cause mm -hmm. of viral reinfection, then we could possibly begin to think about either reducing uh, the, the dose level or the number of doses of, of art that's needed and if we could eliminate the reservoir and eliminate the active virus, then we could have something that we would call a functional cure. So is this why we sometimes see of this very cool uh, treatment that, that happens or that it's published and people are very excited about it and then a few months later it's like, oh no, the patient is like back again into, um, as we can call it remission of uh, NSRC instead of the active virus again? It, it, exactly, exactly. They, uh, when, when people started on this <clears throat> initially, um, you could, you could titer their uh, viral loads uh, from the blood and you could find it, that they were responding positively to uh, ART, to antiretroviral therapy. And it got to the point where you couldn't detect any of the active virus. And so early on, people thought they were cured. And so they stopped taking their, their medication. And often within a period of a couple of weeks, sometimes as little as a day or two or three, um, they would suffer viral rebound. And there was a question about where is this virus coming from? Because it had been totally suppressed. And all of a sudden, it's back. And there was no external exposure. So it had to be coming from somewhere inside the body. And that's when we discovered, we, the, the global community, uh, that there are these reservoir cells. So this virus is uh, you know, a, a pretty diabolically clever uh, organism that insinuates itself into the genome of what we refer to as reservoir cells, typically CD4 positive T cells to get into some technical language, but there are probably other reservoir cells that are involved. And, and these cells are long-lived and often silent for the most part, but every once in a while, under stressful conditions or what have you, they get activated, and when they get activated, they produce more variants, and so they reinfect the person. And that's why people have to take their meds every day, because mm -hmm. if they're off medication, you don't know when this is going to act up, and, and so you always need to have this suppressive uh, therapy in place. And so, you know, it, it just follows that if you could reduce uh, the viral reservoirs, you could reduce the, uh, the therapy that's needed or the frequency of therapy that's needed. And if you could eliminate it, you could possibly come up with a cure. Uh, and, and we're going to learn more about this because we're, you know, people are starting studies on uh, immature um, viral reservoirs. In other words, it takes a while to establish a, a full reservoir. Let's say it's a million cells. It doesn't start off initially with a million cells. It starts off with a few cells. So if we could find uh, situations where where the um, the reservoir is is still small, 
then we could see whether without any kind of intervention, whether art therapy would actually uh, reduce it down to a level where it no longer exists and therefore where a person would be functionally cured. So where do we find people who have immature reservoirs or, or very small reservoirs? For example, HIV positive infants. Mm. So there are studies going on globally <clears throat> on children. There's one in Canada that we're kind of uh, peripherally involved with. Uh, where they're studying HIV-positive infants, which almost by definition should have a very small reservoir. And therefore, if they're put on art for a period of time, because these reservoir cells do die, they just don't die fast enough. Um, over time, though, that small reservoir will become smaller and smaller and smaller, and, and those then children might actually be cured just by being on art therapy. And this would be great. And the only thing we're doing with our approach, well, it's not only thing, I think it's significant, <laughs> is, is we're accelerating the depletion of the reservoir. Mm -hmm. So what's going on naturally already, it's just that it takes too long. A mature reservoir would take about 70 years to clear. Mm. And so all we're doing is kind of stepping on the gas so that the reservoir could be cleared maybe in seven months or seven weeks mm -hmm. through chemical intervention. So let's get into the details of that chemical intervention. Um, so, so we say that, or you mentioned that it takes about 70 years naturally, approximately, for the reservoir to be cleared. How do we activate those reservoir cells so that they can be killed by art therapy? Is it art therapy or is it by another mechanism? The, uh, so they wouldn't be killed by art therapy. The hope would be that, uh, I, I guess we should back up and say that the cells themselves cannot be targeted unless they're activated. So we need to activate them. Uh, and then the hope would be that the activation process itself would be cytopathic. In other words, you activate these cells and because of the activation process, the cells die. They start producing variants. The variants basically rob components from the cells the cells are then weakened because of this activation process and they die. If that's ineffective, plan B would be that we use immunotoxins. And immunotoxins could target activated cells, but they can't target the quiescent cells or the mm -hmm. dormant cells. So plan A is that a compound would be used to activate the cells and would cause a cytopathic death to the activated cells. And this is the so-called uh, kick and kill strategy. You kick them, uh, activate them and then you kill them when they're activated. Um, and if, if a drug which is going to activate does not kill, that is still okay because plan B would be that we could then target the activated cells with immunotoxins and get rid of them. So just think about, you know, if we want to use math or simple numbers, think about a million cells that are constantly or could constantly uh, or intermittently or episodically produce more active virus. If we get rid of those cells, then, then we're talking mm -hmm. about a, a functional cure uh, for the disease. And, and you know, the excitement that I have for this is that this has never been done before, but mm -hmm. uh, if, if one could achieve this, it would be re really transformative for for everyone, I, I, I think this would be, uh, it would be great for science, it would be great for the 37 million people who are HIV positive. Um, and, you know, when, when you look at the situation in emerging countries, you, you really understand that this is a strategy that needs to be emphasized, not necessarily only this one, but eradication needs to be emphasized because rather amazingly, 
uh, even though art therapy is effective in stopping progression of the disease, there are complications that arise uh, from chronic therapy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, early onset problems, health-related problems in the population uh, that is taking uh, these drugs. And then on top of that, what we do know, and th this is data from the Wor World Health Organization for 2015, is that most of the HIV-positive people on this planet either do not have access to art therapy uh, or are non-compliant. Uh, so the only way we're going to, you know, from my point of view, uh, the only way we're going to find a solution to this, particularly in countries where, um, you know, basically they can't afford or, or they don't have afford to bring in the therapy or they don't have a reliable supply, is to see if we could come up with a cure. Because then it's going to be a short-term treatment and everyone should be able to have access to that. And mm -hmm. it's over with at that point in time, you know, mm -hmm. if, if one could realize that dream. And, and it's good to dream, you know, this is, it's outrageous and you don't want to get people's hopes up uh, for this, but you have to think about that and, mm -hmm. and, and you can't help but be excited about that and be motivated by that. And, you know, I, I think from my point of view, what I've learned about this uh, global community is that they're so, so supportive of science. Um, people who are dealing with this, with this chronic therapy understand that there are people who are kind of trying to make their life better. Mm -hmm. Even though they might not understand the science, they're kind of pulling for us all to, to do things that, that will be consequential for them and their loved ones. And it's, it's just so exciting to be associated with people who are so supportive and who understand not necessarily the science, but the consequences of what might happen mm -hmm. uh, if the research were to work out. That's great. So can you share with us how um, your group is planning on attacking the HIV, the dormant HIV cells that are out there? The, the hope would be that, that we could administer to um, HIV-positive uh, people uh, a, a compound yet to be selected, but we have a lot of very good leads. In fact, some of them are, are better than anything we've seen before. Uh, and that these chemicals, when taken, would, would activate these latent viral cells. Um, and then the activation, we hope, will, will cause the cells to die, or we will then have a secondary therapy that will uh, kill the activated cells once, once they're activated. Uh, we're going to do as much as we can uh, through efforts on, on campus and uh, through collaborations. But clearly, down the road, if we create a body of knowledge that's suffi sufficiently uh, positive and compelling, uh, this will need to be partnered with industry. Mm -hmm. And so we are starting the conversation with potential industrial partners who would then do the development work to carry this forward. Yeah, we're finding out that, so one family of compounds that actually have the ability to activate reservoir cells uh, was discovered uh, by Paul Cox um, and colleagues at the National Institutes of Health in the United States um, many years ago in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and that's a molecule called prostratin. And, and that was the first of these uh, reservoir cell activators. Uh, <clears throat> we know that these compounds uh, mediate a lot of their uh, activities through a family of proteins called protein kinase C. 
And so that immediately put into play the possibility that other protein kinase C regulators might also have similar uh, activity with respect to HIV AIDS. And so it was not surprising that another compound um, isolated by Pettit in collaboration with the National Institutes of Health, this compound called bryostatin, uh, also being a PKC modulator, also had activity in terms of uh, activating latent viral reservoirs. And that was a more recent discovery that basically was kind of, uh, it, it was expected for people who understood the connection between prostratin and PKC. And now we have another agent that's activating PKC. So therefore, it should have some therapeutic possibilities, not unlike prostratin, and indeed bryostatin mm -hmm. does. And many laboratories have now started to study this. More or less, it was put into the literature in 2010. So many other laboratories have started to study it. And many of these laboratories have come to the conclusion that bryostatin is perhaps one of the lead compounds. It's be possibly better than prostratin. Our approach to this is that these natural products, prostratin is produced in, in, in a tree, and bryostatin <laughs> is produced in a marine organism, a bryozoan. And, and our position on this is that things produced in a tree and things produced in a bryozoan are not necessarily optimized therapeutics right. uh, for treating HIV AIDS because they preceded in, in evolutionary terms <laughs> even the existence of humans on this planet. So clearly they're evolved for purposes other than treating something that has come along only in the last couple of hundred years as, as a problem we, we humans have. So they're great leads, but they're not necessarily fully optimized drugs. So we start off with, with those natural product leads, and it's good to do that. You know, what I mentioned to everyone is that nature has been doing chemical research for 3.8 billion years, <laughs> uh, so it knows a lot, and, yeah. and we need to read those books. Um, but it hasn't necessarily said, this is how you cure AIDS. So we start off with that lead and with computer modeling, with design, with synthesis, and with biological evaluation, we create better compounds. So we now have compounds that are significantly better than prostratin and significantly better than bryostatin in terms of efficacy for activating latent viral reservoirs, in terms of ease of access synthetically, and in terms of tolerability. And an animal. So, I mean, these are three points of significance. We could make them more easily than we can make the natural products. They're more effective than the natural products, and they're better tolerated in animal models of, of disease. So, we're excited about that because if you're excited about the natural products, which you should be because <laughs> of what they're doing, then you should be even more excited about compounds that are doing those things better. Welcome back to The Big Electron. We were talking about natural products and how those become leads um, to treat HIV, um, and then we can move on to a synthesis of better ones um, that are more efficient. So um, we were talking about two natural products, um, and I know there's a couple of issues with using natural products. Can you share those and how and, and why we want to make synthetic products um, that, that benefit and have uh, better leads. Yeah, I, I think one way of thinking about this is, is so nature just has so many uh, stories, so many lessons uh, to contribute uh, to our understanding of, of our world. And we've only developed the tools in the last 50 years to begin to um, 
read nature, to understand what nature has been doing for about four billion years. So these compounds that, that provide leads are, are just hugely important, but they're not necessarily the final product. They're, they're good leads. Um, they're, they're lessons to be considered and then improved upon. And perhaps the best way, uh, from a non-technical point of understanding that, is when we humans, and we humans have been fascinated with heavier-than-air uh, flight and, and <laughs> with birds and, and things of that type, and when we finally figured out that it's the concavity of the bird's wings that provide the lift that allows for heavier-than-air flight, we didn't necessarily go out and make a bird, as crazy as that might seem. We actually <laughs> use that knowledge to create things that are better, the airplanes, and that then inspired things beyond um, just simple airplanes, the jets, and allowed us to explore space. So that, that's essentially what we're doing with, um, with small molecules. We're taking nature's flying machines, if you will, birds, and we're trying to figure out how they fly, how these molecules uh, create beneficial biological activity and once we understand how they work then we could begin to using computers using synthesis to design and make molecules that work even better and once you do that you could reduce the number of steps that are required if we had to pull a compound out of out of nature to deal with these kinds of problems you know for example bryostatin uh, is is produced in a symbiotic relationship in a bryozoan, and it's actually a bacterium in the gut of this bryozoan, and it's produced at ridiculously small levels. So it takes 14 tons of the source organism to produce just 18 grams of, of um, final product of, of bryostatin. That's a lot of harvesting. It's uh, seasonally variable. It's a scarce amount of material. Sometimes bryostatin is produced by the organism. Sometimes it's not. Um, you have to go in. It doesn't grow in, in large quantities in any one place. So you have to go in and dive in meters of water to find the organism. And that's going to potentially incur a lot of environmental uh, mm -hmm, problems. Mm -hmm. All right. So we have environmental challenges if we're going to try to you try to harvest uh, from the ocean. Uh, so we know enough now to potentially be able to make these compounds uh, using aquaculture. But as is true for a lot of naturally produced materials, when you take the producer out of its ecosystem, it stops to pr producing compounds or it produces them at different levels. And so aqua aquaculture production of brass that one has been tried and it failed. Mm. Um, biosynthesis uh, is still in an early stage and we don't have an expression system because this is a bug that grows in the gut of another organism <laughs> right. and if you pull the bug out of the gut it, it's just a very different uh, ecosystem and it doesn't produce as, mm -hmm. as well as we would like so synthesis then becomes the way of making this compound and, and um, in the past year and a half we my group just an awesome a group of people have actually created a way of making bryostatin one in the laboratory. So this is going to be reproducible, uh, and we hope it's going to be able to uh, supply what's needed in the clinic. And at the same time, that, that very same synthetic pathway, by diverting it just a little bit, is going to give us access to analogs of bryostatin that we think are going to be superior. So in this case, we're making the bird, but we're also making the planes and jets uh, of the future. That's a fantastic way to put it.
Yeah. <laughs> that is great. So, um, does your group solely focus on HIV? Are these um, target? Are these therapeutics that you're working on? Do they have greater application than just HIV? Yeah. So, great question. <laughs> uh, the, these compounds uh, target uh, many types of proteins, and including a family of proteins called PKC. And there are seven members of that family that are highly homologous, and each of the uh, members of that family is connected to a therapeutic indication. In fact, it's almost the who's who of therapeutic indications that include cardiovascular disease, include uh, various types of dementia, including Alzheimer's, include AIDS eradication, including cancer chemotherapy. Uh, and what makes these compounds interesting is that they hit all seven isoforms equally effectively. So they activate all seven isoforms equally effectively, and therefore they're leads in connection with all of those therapeutic opportunities. So Bryostatin-1 right now is um, in a phase 2B clinical trial for treating moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. And in that sense, it's, it's way out in front of the AIDS eradication albeit Bryostatin-1 uh, has been in a, has been entered into a phase one trial for HIV AIDS eradication. So the phase 2B is, is fairly advanced, uh, and in the interest of full disclosure, it's uh, uh, being led by a company called uh, Neurotrope Biosciences, of which I am a, a consultant, and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see how that fares, but, uh, you know, we're always uh, working on a plan B so that no matter what bryostatin does with respect to these therapeutic opportunities, we're going to have uh, other compounds that we think might perform better. So either it's going to work, in which case we're all going to feel good about uh, what happens, and if it doesn't, then we're going to have hopefully better versions to put in into play. But there are several isoforms and there are multiple therapeutic indications. Cancer immunotherapy uh, is huge. The, the Alzheimer's and neurological disorder uh, area is is huge in terms of uh, therapeutic ramifications and the fact that one compound uh, has these multiple kinds of activities is not too surprising we find that from time to time uh, with other drugs but clearly what we want to learn and, and tease apart is how we might be able to get PKC selective activation mm -hmm. so activate find out which indeed of, of these seven or eight isoforms is responsible for a therapeutically beneficial readout and then design agents that specifically target only that one isoform or two or three isoforms if more than one um, is involved in the process so that that's kind of a next generation of version 3.0 of, of <laughs> drug development so you mentioned that we want to target or the scientific community wants to target these specific isoforms um, so that molecules can be designed to target specifically that. Um, what is one of the ways that we know how, how these look like so we can design molecules that specifically target that? Yeah, so often, and, and this, is, uh, this has been going on for uh, decades now, we, we try to establish a structure of a target and then we uh, try to establish the structure of a ligand bound uh, to that target. And once we see that, once we get that information, then we could modify the ligand in ways that would improve uh, the association uh, with the target. So it's kind of like liga 
I'm sorry, Legos clicking together? Uh, you could think about it as Legos clicking together. Um, and, and, you know, you might find that one thing that you have clicked on might actually hysterically or, or clash with part of the host structure. So it's a guest-host relationship. Mm -hmm. It's like a baseball fitting into a glove, if you will. And, and if you throw a football at a first baseman, you know, he, he's going to drop the ball. <laughs> he or she is going to drop the ball. So there, there's an induced fit or a fit that's uh, required for this. So to understand how things fit together, um, we, we use x-ray crystallography as one tool. Uh, but X-ray crystallography is a static picture, and it doesn't reflect the ecosystem of, of a target, you know, where a protein might be um, in a membrane. Um, it, it gives us information, there's no doubt about it, but it doesn't give us the complete uh, set of information that we need. It's a little bit like trying to understand your grandmother by looking at a, a photograph of her. Uh, you'll get some information out of that, but you'd really like the video and the audio and, and uh, things of that type. So what we're doing right now is, is use, using computational chemistry in collaboration with Vijay Pandey, my colleague at, at Stanford, who uh, is the developer of uh, folding at home. And uh, the, the problem that we have is, uh, is, is one of trying to map out the motions of upwards of 100,000 atoms as a function of time. So not the snapshot, but the video of all of these things moving as a function of time. This requires a lot of computational firepower, more than, than we could muster uh, on, on the Stanford campus. So we basically put this on the web uh, through this uh, uh, group called Folding at Home and invite people from around the planet who are not using their computer to give us some of their computer time to do calculations on how these atoms are moving. And they send all of the information back to a student in my group, Stephen Rickbosch, uh, and Stephen converts all of that information into dynamics. And so that now, now we actually could see how these molecules are moving in relationship to one another. And from that richness of information, we could then decide that we want to put a group here and a group there because that's going to create a better association uh, uh, with, with the target molecule. But it's, it's really exciting because it's a collaboration uh, which on average on a daily basis uh, involves 10 to 20,000 people, many of which <laughs> do not necessarily understand all of the ramifications of what we're doing, but, you know, bless them for their enthusiasm to support <laughs> science of this type. You know, I often say, if you can't get excited about this, you don't have a pulse. I mean, this, <laughs> the consequences of this are, are just so huge. And it's so great to see um, not only scientific people, but people who don't necessarily understand this participating with such enthusiasm mm -hmm. uh, in this process. And for protein, protein, I'm sorry, folding at home, you download a screensaver, correct? We, we, uh, it's basically a, an approach where we use their computers, so there's screensaver uh, time when, when they are not using their, their computers to do mm -hmm. calculations for us. And it's, um, you know, I, I don't know what the total subscription is right now, but I've heard guesstimates in the hundreds of thousands of participants That's that fantastic. have signed up on, on average on any given day. As I had mentioned, it's maybe 10 to 20,000. Uh, people helping us, and I think that's great, mm -hmm. you know, because there there are people I don't know who are actually participating in our research in a very positive way. <laughs> <laughs> if 
Protein, uh, if folding at home sounds familiar, uh, and if you are a listener of the show, we've talked about this, so you can imagine that me and Anahita have huge grins <laughs> <laughs> on our faces right now, because this is something, yeah, that yeah, we talked about before. We love um, citizen science or uh, citizen cultivated science projects, and folding at home is one of my personal favorites. <laughs> yeah. So a final question for you that we like to ask, do you have any advice for listeners who may want to follow in your footsteps and become the next Paul? (laughs) Or help you right now? Uh, Anyone who wants to help us right now, I'm I'm more than enthusiastic to open up doors and and do whatever is possible to uh, get behind this effort to to make some of these kinds of changes that we're thinking about. I, I would say I would not recommend anyone uh, aspire to become the next Paul. I would hope that they would aspire to go way beyond where I am, um, but possibly use this as a stepping stone to uh, bigger dreams and, and bigger realities uh, down the road. Um, you know, science and and what we do is is just so incredibly exciting, and it's it's going to be so important. Uh, for our future. We talk about a lot of things, uh, particularly during you know, uh, seasons of politics like we've, we've just been through, but many of the things that are going to change the world for the better are going to come out of investments in higher education, investments in, in research. This is where the new economies are going to come. This is where the new ways of treating health problems are going to come. This is where the new energy sources are going to come from. This is where new environmental uh, uh, philosophies and approaches are, are going to start. And so, you know, there, there's, there's a lot to be done, and, and we're on a path to making a, a positive difference uh, toward that end. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, Dr. Paul Wender from Stanford University for joining us on The Big Electron. And that was our interview with Dr. Paul Wender. As you can see, uh, there's some some cool stuff happening in regards to HIV treatment. So um, hopefully in the near future, we hear a little bit more about it, um, which would be helpful for, for those um, who, who currently have the disease or who will be acquiring it um, in the future. So, yeah. With that, um, this, as we mentioned, this is our last show of, of the semester. Thank you for listening. And uh, this also happens to be Adam's last show. Yes, oh. it is. So. That makes me sad. We've had a great time with you here, Adam. Oh, well, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. It's been uh, something I'm really proud of being able to help out and make people at home listen to my rambling uh, about science. So to anyone who is listening, thanks mom. And also thanks to all the non my moms uh, out there who also listen to our show. So, yeah. Thank it. you. Thank you, Adam, for being uh, such a great part of, of, of the show this last couple of years. And to echo what Adam said, thank you to all of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and we look forward to seeing you, or I guess we look forward to you hearing us in 2017. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so until then, uh, thank you for listening. You're listening. You were listening to The Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM. Have a great evening. This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes.